This is Radio EcoShock with Alex Smith. Welcome to a packed show. Scientist Paul Beckwith warns we are in a climate emergency. Glacier specialist Thomas Bosca on the last big temperature jump in a world as warm as ours. But first, let's talk revolution. We hear desperate calls for immediate action, save Earth from climate change hell. But politicians waste time or even deny global warming? At what point would an overthrow of the political system be the best or only solution? When, as Roger Cox writes, is revolution justified? Who is this revolutionary? In the Netherlands, Roger Cox is a partner at the law firm Paulsen Advocaten. He is the powerhouse lawyer who sued the Dutch government, demanding a 25% cut in greenhouse gas emissions by 2020. He won that case, setting a precedent for people around the world, and we will talk about that. He founded the Planet Prosperity Foundation, promoting a circular economy. And Roger is known in Europe as a leader in sustainable real estate development, something almost unknown in North America. Roger's new book is called Revolution Justified. Let's talk with him now. Roger Cox, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Thank you, uh, Alex. Thanks for inviting me and thanks for having me. Is your starting point the conclusion that current governments are failing to avert a climate catastrophe? Indeed, that is a starting point uh, that we uh, took as a starting point for our legal uh, proceedings against uh, the Dutch government. If you look at uh, the evidence that is out there, there is a, a general consensus in the international community of countries, which is, uh, has also been established once again in the uh, Paris uh, Agreement, that a two-degree warming of the average temperature of the Earth would be dangerous for humanity and for the ecosystems that humanity depends on. And it's also widely uh, recognized and acknowledged that current emission reduction targets of countries are definitely not enough for keeping us below this two-degree threshold. So I don't think that there's any denial in the world that we're not doing enough to keep us below that dangerous threshold of two degrees. And we took that as a starting point for our court case. Your book, Revolution Justified, talks about the failure of democracy. Do we need new leaders, or do we need a whole different form of government? What I mean by that is that uh, if you look at the, the current uh, political system and our current economic system as well, uh, it's very much uh, short-term based, while solving the climate problem is, is really a long-term effort where results will only be garnered at the second part of this century. And that has much to do with the delay in, in, in the climate system, in effect meaning that emissions that are uh, discharged to the atmosphere today only have their real warming effect in uh, 30 or 50 years later. So there is a delay there. And that makes it quite difficult for politics and also the market, I think, to deal with this long-term problem, given the fact that their focus is so short-term. Obviously, it's also an international and a very complex problem, so that makes it hard for politicians to deal with it in, in one-liners, in the media, etc. So there's a lot of arguments that you can make why our current neoliberal policy system and market system is, is really not up to the task of dealing with dangerous climate change and, and really uh, solving it. And then looking at our democratic system, it's a, it's a system based on the rule of law. And up till now, in the last two decades or so, Climate change has only been dealt with by our political powers, the legislators and, and, and the executive powers. 
and really not so much by the third power in our democracy, uh, namely the judiciary. So the idea is get the judiciary involved, and uh, the only way to do that is to bring a case to court and ask him to intervene in climate policies, and that is what we did. Uh, So basically what I'm saying is I think that we need the judiciary as a third power in our constitutional state and in our uh, democratic system to solve the climate problem and, and help the political powers, if you will, to solve that problem. Please tell us more about your case, Roger Cox, uh, against the Dutch government. What did you ask for and what did you get? We asked for a certain reduction target by uh, 2020, namely a 25% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions, cumulative emissions in the Netherlands uh, by 2020. And that is a target that is derived from an acknowledgement by all industrialized nations of the world in 2010 in the so-called Cancun agreements, where all industrialized nations uh, like Canada and the U.S. Uh, and, and obviously also the Netherlands acknowledge that from a scientific perspective, it is necessary for them to at least reduce their emissions by 25 percent in 2020 relative to the uh, levels of uh, 1990. And actually, there's very few countries in the world that have followed up on that scientific finding those few countries being, amongst others, uh, Germany and Denmark, who aim more than 25% by 2020. But the Netherlands is not, uh, nor are countries like Canada and the U.S. or Australia, for that matter. So what we basically argue in court and, and have done so with great success is that knowing what needs to be done to keep us below this threshold of two degrees and not doing it, so knowingly and willingly keep on contributing to emissions of, of greenhouse gases that will breach that threshold, is in fact a human rights infringement and is an uh, infringement of the duty of care that a national state has against its citizens. How has this groundbreaking legal victory in the Netherlands expanded into a movement in other countries? Already when we started the case in the Netherlands, uh, shortly after, a similar case has been brought to court in Belgium. So that's a case that's now uh, pending for a year already. And it's, it has the same basis and the same claims as we've in the Netherlands. Uh, I'm also involved in that particular case. Uh, there's a, uh, a case now in New Zealand that is pending that is a follow-up on the success of the Netherlands. So they're pretty much using the same argumentation as we've put forward in our court case in the Netherlands and transformed it to the legal system in New Zealand. There's obviously a lot of litigation going on by our Children's Trust Foundation in the United States. That's a, a separate legal action that was instigated parallel to our start of the proceedings in the Netherlands. And there's a lot of interest in other countries, in Norway, Australia, there's a lot of interest in France. An organization has already claimed that they will sue the French government if they don't follow up on, on the same claim that we've been making in, in the Netherlands. There's uh, interest in, in a country like Switzerland. There's interest in a country like Canada and Ireland. So there is definitely uh, something going on. It's obviously a, a sort of fresh victory. Uh, the victory uh, in, in court in the Netherlands was, was of uh, June last year. So the fact that we now already have a few other cases pending in the world is uh, very hopeful. And the same goes for the interest that there is in, in other countries as well. Well, Roger Cox, let's say the Arctic sea ice disappears, the northern hemisphere is hit by years of unrelenting storms and heat waves, maybe crops fail. 
If a government fails to respond, do you think a violent overthrow would ever be justified? Um, I don't think that can be justified in our system, and I don't think that that is anything that we should aim for. The revolution that that I am discussing is a revolution through the use of our uh, legal system, which is obviously quite a different story. So I wouldn't uh, argue that that is the way forward. But the other side of this question is that, in fact, there will be a lot of, I think, a lot of uprisings uh, that will be caused by climate change and are already caused by climate change in a way, because it has already been established that the crisis in Syria, which has led to the refugee crisis in Europe, for instance, is partly due to climate consequences in, in Syria in the last couple of years. There have been extreme droughts between 2007 and 2011 in Syria, making it very hard for farmers to grow crops, and a lot of of their livestock has died, and as a result thereof, one and a half million farmers in that country have flocked to the city areas and and, uh, have become impoverished in in those cities. Uh, No jobs, no way to to get back to the countryside, to the rural areas where they came from. And obviously uh, that is a sort of hotspot for unrest in any uh, community and in any country. So there's already, there are links between uprisings and climate change for that matter. And we will see more of that in decades to come. And I think that that is a serious enough development. This is Radio Ecoshock. I'm Alex Smith. We are talking with Roger Cox, a top-level lawyer working in the Netherlands. He says a revolution is justified, but a legal one. Now, you just mentioned really security, and I'm wondering how the problem of energy and climate change threaten public safety, even the stability that we have taken for granted. Again, following up on on what I was just discussing in relation to Syria, you see that there's a lot of security issues already in our country, in the Netherlands, but also in the European Union as a whole in relation to the refugee crisis that we're now experiencing uh, due to uh, influx of refugees from Syria. And uh, that leads to a lot of political discussions. Should we close our borders once again? As you know, the, the European Union, one of its main aims has been to become a sort of borderless continent where goods and people can move freely. And that is actually what we have, have established in the last decades. But now there's a lot of discussion again if each and every nation should start shutting down its borders once again and fall back on a scenario that we've been experiencing till a few decades ago, uh, where there was no such a thing of uh, free uh, movement of goods and people and so on. So there's almost nothing that doesn't have political consequences already in relation to climate change effects. Look at the droughts that a state like California has been experiencing since the last couple of years. Also due to climate change, uh, it affects their farmers over there. It, It affects the water system, the sanitation system. So there's a lot of consequences that we need to be prepared for that are related to changes in the climate. Well, you know, I can believe some European laws could be used for a big change, but when we look at the top legal levels of the United States, it doesn't look so good. The Supreme Court has routinely quashed even the most rudimentary climate protection moves made by the Obama administration. How can we find hope there for a legal solution? Yeah, well, I'm not an an American lawyer, obviously, but what I understand from the cases that have been brought in the United States Well, obviously, one of those cases was extremely successful. That was the case of uh, 
in Massachusetts versus the Environmental uh, Protection Agency, where the Supreme Court, in fact, stated that climate change is a real and potentially catastrophic uh, phenomena for uh, a state like uh, Massachusetts and, and also, obviously, other states in the United States. So it's a real and imminent uh, threat, climate change, according to the Supreme Court. And they've compelled the Environmental Protection Agency to indeed make a scientific finding about uh, greenhouse gases as air pollution, uh, which in the end the EPA also ruled uh, upon in that way. So I think that the United States is one of the first countries where greenhouse gases have been designated as a air pollutant. And there's a lot of regulation uh, that has been coming from that uh, particular case and, and that particular finding by the EPA. That being said, other cases where companies have been sued by certain claimants, uh, so fossil fuel companies, that is, uh, those claims have been denied, and as I understand it, mainly on the fact that the Clean Air Act in the United States uh, displaces the federal tort law, amongst others, if you will, and our case is, uh, is mainly based on tort law. Uh, but it doesn't say anything on claims that can be made against states as such. That's one thing. And the Clean Air Act, uh, for instance, doesn't displace the Constitution of the United States. So what you see now is that a, uh, a foundation like uh, the Our Children's Trust Foundation is litigating anew against the federal government, uh, claiming more or less the same things that we've been claiming in the Netherlands, and arguing that climate change will become a violation of the constitutional rights of people in the United States, and particularly the younger generations and the next generations, as it comes to the right to freedom and liberty and so on. So there are ways forward on a federal level and also on a, on a state level. And there's a lot of litigation going on against states, and almost every state, I think, by this foundation, by this group. So there's definitely hope that one way or another, also in the United States, one can find a direction through using the law in order to get states or the federal state as such compelled to do something and do a lot more about climate change. And the same sort of approach would, for instance, also be feasible in a country like Canada, where there is also charter rights that can be uh, invoked as becoming infringed by climate change, etc. So you, you will have to look at each and every legal jurisdiction and legal system in each and every country because you will definitely need some different angles in each and every country. But the basic uh, reasoning that our case was based upon can be used in almost any jurisdiction, I would say. Now, another possible roadblock I thought of was the international trade agreements, which take away national powers to protect the environment. The Trans-Pacific Partnership deal of 12 countries is just one example. It almost seems to me we are going backwards in law. What do you think? Well, I think that the trade agreements could be and is maybe a dangerous development. On the other side, what one sees is that in those arbitrations where companies more or less sue governments because of change in environmental policies, a new development that one can also see happening is that those same countries sort of counterclaim against those companies for polluting their countries. So I'm not sure where that will end up, but definitely this is something to be worried about because in those trade agreements, 
there is a sort of rule that uh, gives companies, I, I guess, more power to sue a government than it does uh, regular civilians or non-governmental organizations. So there's a, there's a bit of disbalance there, I think, when it comes to protecting your rights. It might be very well the case that businesses, due to these trade agreements, have, become, have come into a position where their rights might be better protected than the rights of uh, civilians, regular citizens, and environmental organizations. But that is something that we will, will have to see. Uh, on the other hand, I would think that uh, each and every company in the world right now must expect that countries will start to regulate uh, the emission of greenhouse gases much stricter than they do uh, right now. So I wouldn't be surprised that in the end of the day, those claims based on, on trade agreements uh, will not be successful when it comes to stricter climate uh, regulation by countries. I don't think that a, a company in due time can still argue that they needn't to expect that new and strict regulation would be implemented. And I think that especially after the Paris Agreement, everybody needs to expect that uh, even companies and fossil fuel companies, that there will be much more stricter climate policies uh, implemented in our countries. Well, I do agree with you there, but what about countries where the rule of law is fuzzy at best? I'm thinking of China, which can make or revoke laws to suit political needs, or the many countries where laws are made to support oligarchs in power. We cannot sue to save the climate in Saudi Arabia, but we do need them on board. What then? Yeah, well, my, my focus in this first phase is, not, is also not so much on countries like Saudi Arabia and uh, China, and that is because on an international stage and in the UN Climate Treaty of 1992, and even in, Paris, in the Paris Agreement, it has been acknowledged that it is up to the industrialized nations first to make the big steps, and that has been the case for almost 20 years now. And that is based on, on a principle that is called uh, common but differentiated responsibilities. So basically, in the industrialized world, I think that all legal systems uh, that we have in the industrialized world are to be taken seriously and are not corrupt, uh, I would think. And that is where our, uh, our main focus is right now. So in the industrialized world, the first steps need to be, uh, be made, and, uh, and that's what our legal focus is uh, on right now. In the second phase, one would have to look indeed also at countries like China and Saudi Arabia, for, uh, for instance. And we would have to dig into uh, their legal systems a lot deeper to get a good understanding of how to best go forward in those countries. Uh, but uh, that is not something that I've studied already. Roger Cox, I think laws should protect my descendants, but they don't. Can we change that? I think that looking at the law as it stands now, and particularly looking at our case in the Netherlands, the court has already ruled that there is a responsibility for our state to keep an eye on the interest of the next generations of Dutch citizens, because solving the climate issue again, is something that is very urgent and it needs policy measures right now. And delaying those policy measures, which uh, will make solving the climate problem only uh, much more expensive and will have greater threats to our next generations. So in our, in our case, our court found that you need, when drafting policies, climate policies, you need to take into account that you cannot shift 
too much of the burden of uh, solving the issue to the next generations as a sort of equity principle. And this principle has also been enshrined in the, uh, or is enshrined in the uh, UN Climate Treaty. And almost every country that I know of does have a principle that basically uh, states that you should comply with international legal standards and principles as much as you can when looking at solving a national legal issue. So I do think that uh, such an equity principle, for instance, between generations is something that can be invoked and can be argued in court on almost any jurisdiction. So I do think that there are already ways in which we can address the position of the next generations. And summing up, but two questions. First, what do you want lawyers and judges in every country to do? Well, first of all, I think that it is very necessary that the legal community as such does get a better understanding of what the climate change problem is all about, why it is so urgent at this particular time. Although when you look outside, you, most of us will think, well, what, what's, what's the problem? But that has a lot to do with not uh, exactly understanding what climate science is telling us. I think that they need to get a good grasp on the, the consequences that it will have for rights within their national territories. Uh, to give you an example, uh, again in 2010 in the Cancun agreements, all nation states have acknowledged together that climate change will affect the enjoyment of human rights negatively in all areas in the world, no exceptions there. So it will have effects on human rights in, in Canada, in the U.S., in the Netherlands, in Australia, and not only in African or Asian countries. And obviously where there is a threat, a very large threat, a worldwide threat in essence on large-scale human rights infringements, it, it is obvious that the legal community should get involved in an issue like, uh, like that. So, and I always thought in our case that once we get the court to really understand what the gravity of climate change is and what the consequences will be in the next half of this, uh, this century in, in the Netherlands and, and around the world, that once you really understand that, you will be open as a court for the suggestions that we've been making is that it is absolutely unjustified and a violation of the law if you keep on willingly and knowingly contributing to creating that specific problem that will create these human rights infringements. So I do think that the legal community, lawyers, courts, uh, academics, legal academics, do need to become much more involved uh, in this issue. And hopefully there will be uh, more court cases that will at least bring this question to court so courts can have an opinion about uh, this issue. And that's also why we started the case. It's just to make it possible for courts to intervene if they think they should, and if they, they think they, don't, they, they shouldn't, then that's also an outcome that, that one can live with. But I couldn't live with the fact that nobody was actually bringing a case to court, so the judiciary could have an opinion about it. And I think that that is the most important thing for bringing cases to court, is to bring the judiciary in a position to become much more aware about this issue and have an opinion about whether or not uh, the law uh, has a role to play in solving the climate issue and in uh, and intervening in national climate policies. 
We'll have to leave it there. We've been talking with an unlikely revolutionary. Roger Cox is a partner in a prestigious Dutch law firm, founder of the Planet Prosperity Foundation, and he leads in sustainable property development. His book is Revolution Justified, and you can find it at revolutionjustified.org. Get more links for this story in my own show blog at ecoshock.info. Roger Cox, it has been a pleasure talking with you. Thank you, Annex. I'm Alex Smith for Radio Ecoshock. Hi, I'm Paul Beckwith. I'm with the University of Ottawa, the Laboratory for Paleoclimatology. Although these videos that I put together and the blogs and my website, paulbeckwith.net, if you just uh, Google paulbeckwith.net or Paul Beckwith Climate Change, you can find all kinds of my work on abrupt climate change, on the Arctic, on methane. But What I want to do here is just talk about just some general things about how the overall climate is changing very rapidly and the human response is uh, completely insufficient to deal with the rapid changes that are occurring. I think we're reaching a point where public is going to go from not caring or kind of tuning out climate change to going into a mode of sheer panic you know, utter panic over, my God, we're all doomed, you know, we can't do a thing, we've left it too late, and pointing fingers at scientists for not communicating the problem, for not standing up and yelling from the tops of buildings, or pointing fingers at politicians. You know, maybe some of them will even point fingers where the fingers should be pointed. And that's really at the uh, denial industry. It's at the heavily funded oil company You know, large corporations heavily funding people to scream at the top of their lungs saying that climate change, oh, it's always happened. You know, humans are insignificant. We're not doing anything. You know, what can we do? It's a big planet, etc. All of this nonsense. I mean, that's where most of the blame should go on stopping action on climate change. I mean, at this late stage, you know, it's amazing to me that there's still there's still denialists. You know, there's loads of trolls. I mean, if there's any decent article in a mainstream paper or blog or something, then look at the comment sections. I mean, it's just swarmed by trolls. Oh, climate change has always happened. At this stage, we should be over this. I mean, these people will go into hiding, I think, very soon when the public reaches the uh, panic stage over climate change. And what's it going to take to uh, cause that? Well, that's a big question. I mean, I think it's coming soon. You actually have some mainstream scientists like Stefan Ramsdorf or something saying, we kind of have a climate emergency right now. Like, you know, what is that? Like, we kind of have a climate emergency? You know, a very strong statement from Mr. Ramsdorf. Last summer, James Hansen put a paper online about superstorms. In the past, we had these massive storms which pushed boulders up very high, you know, on islands in uh, the Bahamas and other places. And this happened when there was a rapid transition in temperature, and we had very large uh, temperature gradients over short distances and, you know, over the ocean. And therefore, we had large pressure differences and very high winds. And these high winds had very large fetch over the ocean and generated these massive waves, which then pushed up boulders onto uh, shorelines and things like that. So this paper came out originally, well, it was, it was, I think it was June of 2015 and something like that. And when it came out, I thought, yeah, this is an extremely significant paper. And I actually filmed 
nine different uh, YouTube videos going through the paper sequentially, breaking it down, putting it in the context of abrupt climate change. I mean, it covered a lot of things. It didn't cover everything. Um, it didn't talk about methane in the Arctic coming up. It didn't relate the uh, huge Arctic temperature amplification to the jet stream waviness. Um, it did talk about the large pool of cold water south of Greenland and how that was affecting the uh, ocean currents and how it was affecting the jet stream patterns across the Atlantic, specifically causing tremendous storms in uh, the UK and uh, other parts of Western Europe. So this paper passed peer review and was released just recently, and then it's picked up by a lot of the mainstream media, like the Washington Post and the New York Times. These places all ran articles, you know, talking actually about abrupt climate change. You know, climate change can happen over a matter of decades, rapid climate change versus centuries were some of the headlines. Superstorms are on the way, and, you know, it's a little flurry of press, and it'll die down, of course. But we will reach a point very soon when it doesn't die down, when it becomes mainstream headlines. And, you know, I think about four or five years ago, I said that this would likely happen when we lost the sea ice in the Arctic, when we had this blue ocean event for the first time and people could see on images, okay, we've got no white crown at, at you know, the North Pole, no white crown to reflect solar radiation and keep the thing cool, no snow and ice to absorb a lot of the heat. So instead of that, when there's no snow and ice there, that heat raises the temperature of the water significantly. It thaws out the seafloor sediments and there's fracturing and there's methane coming up from methane clathrates, which are basically lattices of frozen water surrounding methane molecules. And when the uh, ice is melted, the methane is released, the expansion of volume is 160, what, 180 times, something like that. And it builds up pressure and then it can uh, elevate regions of the seafloor, such as what we're seeing on the, in the Kara Sea right now. Or if it's on land, it can build up pressure and blow big uh, pockets of earth up and create these massive craters. And these things are popping up over Siberia. We're seeing lots of these We've, this is a new phenomenon. We've seen lots of these things appearing over Siberia in the last few years. I haven't heard of any in Alaska yet, but it's just a matter of time before they come to Alaska too. You're listening to EcoShock Radio for the world. I'm Alex Smith. Get it all at our website, ecoshock.org. We continue with scientist Paul Beckwith from the University of Ottawa calling out a great climate emergency. We are seeing large rises of methane in the northern regions. Uh, as high as up in the high atmosphere over the Arctic, there's been a few days where we've had over 3,000 parts per billion of methane recorded by satellites over the Arctic. The methane level is about 1,800, 1,850 parts per billion global average in the atmosphere. That level ranged from about 350 to 700 parts per billion over the last million years, and uh, we're way above that. CO2 varied between 180 and about 280, 300 parts per million over the last million years, and we're about 405, and we rose 3.09 in 2015, and 2.7, 2.8 something in 2014, Meanwhile, 
people are patting themselves on the back saying that global emissions have stabilized in 2015, 2014. There's a big disconnect there, and I did a separate video on that. I guess, you know, myself in studying this problem for years, it still amazes me how we can see all of these articles saying climate change happening faster than normal. Scientists amazed at the melt rates in Antarctica or Greenland. How can scientists continue to be amazed? How can things always happen faster than normal? Like Google faster than normal on climate change and put together a little report. It's amazing. Now Google slower than normal or climate change proceeding as expected and you'll find almost nothing. So this is a huge problem. There's a problem in the way this um, issue is being communicated to people in the scientific community when it's completely one-sided. Everything's happening faster than normal. Everything's happening and surprising scientists. And the IPCC models do not account for methane. They say methane is not going to come up and it's not really, when I say not accounted for, they don't run any models on the case if methane comes up big time from permafrost or tundra or uh, from the class rates in the ocean floor. This isn't in the IPCC models. And in their infinite wisdom, they neglected to consider methane coming up in large quantities. The cold blob uh, south of Greenland, the warm blobs in the Pacific. You know, when scientists start calling things blobs, start to, you know, run for the hills and get extremely worried because it means that they don't really know, you know, what's going on. You know, in the last five, six years, maybe ten years, I mean, we started to see a change in the statistics of extreme weather events around the planet. The frequencies, severities, and durations of, of floods and droughts and, uh, Extreme weather events like this, heat waves has increased greatly. It's ramping up. The insurance companies are, are very aware of this. Um, the public is waking up to these problems. We ain't seen nothing yet, baby. Um, the warming in the Arctic is going to skyrocket far beyond anything we've seen. And this is going to really monkey way more with our weather system. Our extreme weather you know, events and stuff will skyrocket, probably a factor of 10 or 20. And then it's just a matter of time before the public starts to panic over this. You know, in Paris, it's all the talks about a two degree, you know, two's too much, 1.5 above pre-industrial. Well, all of February 2016, we were 1.57 degrees above pre-industrial. In fact, there's a day, uh, I think it was March 3rd or something, when the Northern Hemisphere was above over 2 degrees Celsius warmer than normal. I mean, 1.5 degrees or 2 degrees, these numbers are really meaningless. I mean, the, the, the temperatures are rising much faster over the land, for example, than the oceans. But the oceans are, are warming. They've taken in over 90% of the heat. So, like, we have an emergency situation on our hands. We need to zero fossil fuel emissions. There's no question. We need to do it on the level with the urgency of, the, say, the Manhattan Project to build the bomb in World War II or the Marshall Plan to rebuild Europe and rebuild Japan after the war was over. We need to do this uh, full speed ahead. It's not a technology issue, it's a political issue. We're going to be in a much warmer world, and this is all happening on decade or two timescales. This is becoming very, very evident to many, many more people. I've been talking about it for five years. So please have a look at my website, paulbeckwith.net, and please make a lot of noise to any decision makers that you know to let people know, yes, we have a climate change emergency. If you have a story idea or thoughts on something you've heard, contact us, radio at eagleshock.org. 
That's radio at ecoshock.org. Before the 10,000 years of stable climate our civilization grew up in, the great glaciers came and went. The climate shifted with them, sometimes warming as much as 5 degrees centigrade within 50 years, we've been told by a recent guest. It's a tough field to understand and harder still to figure out what applies to climate change today and what does not. Some climate deniers have played on that confusion. But the science of past deglaciation is getting better and better. A new paper out from a team of scientists from the United States, Britain, and New Zealand almost crushed my skull with problems. I wrote the lead author, Thomas K. Bosco, with my beginner's questions, and he patiently schooled me a bit in the patterns of climate change that I did not know. And that's why we've called on Thomas today, educated in Chicago with a Ph.D. in geology from Oregon State. Dr. Bosca is currently a researcher with the Department of Earth Sciences at the University of Cambridge in Britain. The paper that stimulated this discussion is titled Carbon Isotopes Characterize Rapid Changes in Atmospheric Carbon Dioxide During the Last Deglaciation. It was just published in the prestigious Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences, or PNAS. Thomas, welcome to Radio EcoShock. Uh, thanks for letting me be here. As a non-scientist, my first surprise reading your paper was that deglaciation can cause a rise in CO2 and not the other way around. Is that true, and how could that happen? Yes, that's true. One way is through positive feedbacks in the climate system. And one simple example of that, of a positive feedback that we probably are seeing in the deglaciation, is that as the Earth warms, the temperature of the ocean will also increase, and warmer ocean waters can hold less CO2. And one way to think about that is just like when your soda pop gets warm, it will degas and peel a little bit, little bit less bubbly. So as the ocean warms, it will actually give off more CO2 into the atmosphere, thus increasing temperatures, which actually then creates a positive feedback loop where ocean temperatures increase once again and CO2 continues to rise. About 10 years ago, people denied carbon dioxide was warming the planet. They jumped on the science of glaciology to produce the argument summarized as CO2 doesn't lead, it lags. Can carbon levels rise after a warming? And if so, what do you think caused the initial warming that you studied? Yeah, the cause of the initial warming or the initial trigger for the CO2 rise is still a bit of an open question in the deglaciation. What we think we see when CO2 initially rises about 18,000 years ago is either a switch in ocean circulation or perhaps a switch in the strength of the biological pump in the ocean, essentially a decrease in how productive the oceans, and that released the initial CO2, which then sort of triggered the deglaciation. And when you say productive, you may be talking about plankton, for example. Yeah, exactly. When plankton produce carbon in the surface ocean, they eventually die and fall into the deep ocean where that carbon is respired. That carbon is built up in the deep ocean. If, for instance, you have essentially a big shift in ocean circulation, like upwelling of these carbon-rich waters to the surface, they'll get a rise in atmospheric CO2. Now, talking about this, in email you referred me to a 2012 paper published in the journal Nature by Shakun et al., and the title is Global Warming Preceded by Increasing Carbon Dioxide Concentrations During the Last Deglaciation. 
What does that paper tell us? That paper tells us, on the whole, looking at globally average temperatures, that the CO2 actually still increased first and drove probably quite a bit of the global warming during the last deglaciation. Now, a lot of other factors are at play, including shifts in the Earth's orbit that control how much sunlight, say, gets to the northern hemisphere and will, at least at that time, 20,000 years ago when the ice sheets had covered most of Canada, that increasing solar radiation can melt the ice sheets. Because I think it's actually a really interesting point that Shacken brought up because previously skeptics had called on this idea that temperature rose before CO2 and then therefore CO2 had no, no impact on the last deglaciation. But largely those arguments were based on the lead lag relationship between temperature in Antarctica and CO2 in the ice cores that we measure in Antarctica. And there are a couple of factors going on there, but the simple one is that's only really comparing one location, one place on the Earth to CO2. So what Shacken did was he compiled many, many records from both the Northern Hemisphere and some Southern Hemisphere, Greenland, Antarctica, and the tropics, and added them all together to figure out globally that temperatures were actually lagging the CO2 rise. Now, I'd like to shift a little bit in our topic here. Some scientists, in fact a growing number, worry about the possibility of an abrupt climate shift. And I notice that many of the examples of such shifts given in the past occur during times of deglaciation. True? That's true. Uh, During the deglaciation, and let's just frame it here, this is about 18,000 to 10,000 years in the past. On average, we saw global temperatures rise fairly slowly, maybe three or four degrees centigrade over that about 10,000 years. Now, some places saw abrupt climate change, and particularly this was documented from the Greenland ice cores, where about halfway through the deglaciation, let's say, at about 14,000 years ago, Greenland temperatures shot up over at least over 10 degrees, probably. And at the same time, we saw a huge spike in the methane concentrations and a small increase in CO2 by about 10 ppm over a few centuries. This is one of the intervals we addressed in our, in our study. When was that? So that was the onset of the bowling alarod period, which is about 14.6 thousand years ago. And temperatures in Greenland went up about 10 degrees C in a pretty quick time. You said two abrupt climate changes were likely driven by changes in land carbon. What does that mean? When we investigated a few of the times that CO2 was rising fairly rapidly, and when I say rapidly, that's rapid for a geologist. So we're talking about changes of about 10 ppm in CO2 over a few centuries. And to put that in some context, you know, we've had a CO2 rise of over 100 ppm in just the last century. So it's fast for a geologist. It's relatively actually slow and a small change, I'd say, compared to the anthropogenic influence of the present day. But when we saw some of these small rises in CO2 of about 10 ppm, we also saw that the carbon isotopes, which can fingerprint different sources of CO2, also changed quite rapidly. And they were changing in a direction that was saying that the CO2 might be coming from the land biosphere, and that would be things like land plants or carbon that's stored in soils. Right. I'm thinking during the times when the glaciers were around, it was also pretty dry, was it not? That's what you would say globally. Colder air can hold less water vapor 
you know, this is just like in, in the wintertime, the air is, is drier and colder. Plus, a lot of the world's available water got sucked up into the glaciers and stored there. So the reason I bring that up is because if, as the glaciers advance and that period advances, then land plants die, obviously, they're going to give up their carbon. I'm, there's a carbon balance happening there that I haven't totally grasped yet. Yeah, so let's go back in time to the time when the ice sheets were big during the last glacial maximum, about 20,000 years ago. At that time, probably lots of carbon from land had been essentially scraped off the continents, let's say, and dumped into the ocean. Then as the ice sheet pulled back, you know, you can think of the boreal forest in Siberia or over Canada, eventually grew back and redeveloped soils. So on long time scales, you know, in and out of ice ages, you have this waxing and waning of carbon on land. But what was kind of interesting was that during the deglaciation, you might have had a little burp, essentially, of land carbon make its way to the atmosphere in a few centuries. And we looked at other climate records then to figure out where this land carbon could be coming from. And what we saw was at the time, there are records of climate from the tropics, from speleothems, essentially stalactites and stalagmites that grow in caves, can record how wet the cave system was and or how much rainfall there was over the tropics. And we saw at that same time, the strength of the monsoons was very, very weak. So the possible idea is that there was maybe a cooling and widespread drought in the northern hemisphere, and that's what released a little bit of more CO2 to the atmosphere. You are tuned to Radio EcoShock. I'm your host, Alex Smith. My guest is Dr. Thomas K. Bosca, a researcher at Cambridge University in the U.K., We're talking about what we can learn and what we can't from new science on disappearing glaciers. Thomas, I know some listeners will be thinking, Greenland is melting rapidly now, parts of Antarctica are too, mountain glaciers all over the world are retreating. Are we not in a period of deglaciation now? Yeah, that's that's an interesting way to think about it. One way to put it in context is that during the last ice age, we had a huge ice sheet that extended from essentially northern Canada all the way to Chicago, New York City, and that the total amount of more ice that was on the planet at that time was able to draw sea level down by about 120 meters or so. Now, in the future, we are looking at very significant rises in sea level, perhaps on the order of a meter over hundreds of years, but we won't be able to have the same magnitude change in sea level that we see on glacial interglacial cycles because there's just not as much ice left, essentially, on the planet compared to what there was in the Ice Age. Okay, let's get right to your paper. What was your team trying to determine? What we were trying to do was essentially fingerprint the sources for CO2 during the last deglaciation. So almost over 30 years ago, essentially in the the 1980s, the first measurements from ice cores came out, and they pointed out that CO2 was probably lower during the last ice age. And over time, we refined the measurements, made better and better records of this rise in CO2. And it's been extremely important for understanding how the climate system works, because in order to predict the future, we have to have some understanding if the models are working and a big target for models to see if they're getting uh, their physics right and all and everything that goes into them is to study what the climate was like during the last ice age. And one really important thing to understand then is to how much, how much lower CO2 was during the ice age. How much lower was it? 
CO2 during the last ice age was as low as 190 or so ppm. Now, to compare that, then during the deglaciation, it rose about 80 ppm over at least 8,000 years. Now, to give that some context, though, we've already seen CO2 rise over 100 ppm over the last century. So it's a much slower change in CO2 than we're seeing today, but it's still an interesting time to, to understand how the Earth can transition from one climate to the next as CO2 changes. How were your ice samples gathered, and what did you use to measure the state of CO2? We actually found a fairly unique site to gather these ice samples. So probably your listeners are maybe familiar with uh, ice cores and can imagine that generally we go to the very top of the ice sheet in Antarctica or Greenland and drill down to get older ice. But here we wanted to get very, very large samples of ice to measure gases that we, we can't get because even in a, in a deep ice core, the ice is very precious. So the other place, not only is there old ice deep in the ice sheets in Antarctica, but actually eventually that ice makes its way back to the surface and most of it's lost in the form of icebergs, but some of it actually reaches the surface and outcrops on glaciers. So we went to this very special place called the Dry Valleys of Antarctica, and it's called the Dry Valleys because the conditions are very, very unique there, that as this ice flows out towards the sea, instead of melting or cavernous icebergs, it actually sublimates, that is, you know, turns directly from a solid, essentially, to a vapor. So you have these large valleys in a few unique places in Antarctica that are free of ice, not because it's melting, but actually because it's sublimating. And so we went to this uh, Taylor Glacier and in this dry valleys and actually found very old ice on the surface and were able to essentially mine the ice and get almost unlimited sampling to take home back to the laboratory. And then looking at the puzzles uncovered by this new research, your team attempted to come up with explanations, and most of those come from changes in the state of the ocean or ocean life. Can you talk a bit more about that, Thomas, please? Yeah, there's, there's a few hypotheses for what drives glacial and interglacial CO2. The one, one of the things is that there's the theories behind glacial and interglacial CO2 are very, very diverse. And generally, what we think is that the ultimate drivers behind the CO2 rise are going to be complex, and they're actually going to be a combination of different things. Let's let's go from that, because I think one of the things that I got from your email and from your paper is that you found a lot of possible pathways and drivers, and I think that's the most challenging part of your new science. You don't find a single mechanism to explain, but a very complex system that feeds back on itself, and that's part of the problem of communicating this science, would you say? Yeah, yeah. I think the idea of feedbacks might be an interesting way to frame it. So essentially what what we found during the deglaciation is that overall CO2 rises in two kind of distinct phases. And this is reflected in the carbon isotopes. So the earliest part of the CO2 rise, where it rose about 30 ppm over, let's say, a thousand years, must have been sourced from organic matter that was in the deep ocean. Now, how this carbon got out of the ocean is still not known exactly. One theory is that the carbon was upwelled through stronger ocean currents. Possibly the driver of these ocean currents actually was the atmosphere. So around Antarctica, there's extremely strong current that surrounds the continent, and that's driven by winds. 
Now, one trigger for this CO2 increase could have been stronger winds, which then drove stronger upwelling, which then pulled carbon out of the deep ocean and brought it to the atmosphere. A kind of second idea is that maybe it's driven by changes in productivity. So the other thing, interesting thing about the, about the ocean around Antarctica, this is called the Southern Ocean, is that the organisms that grow on the surface need iron to be productive. And at the same time of the initial CO2 rise, we also see a decrease in the flux of dust to Antarctica. And presumably, at the same time, the flux of iron that comes with this, with this dust, terrestrial dust. So the other idea is that there was a decrease in dust to the Southern Ocean, a decrease in iron, and therefore a decrease in productivity, which had then allowed more CO2 to get out of the ocean and reach the atmosphere. Now, in the second phase of the CO2 rise, which occurs in the later part of the deglaciation, we see a different change in the carbon isotopes. And what possibly is going on there is that, well, we still probably have further release of CO2 from the oceans through biological processes, but the isotopes also tell us that ocean warming becomes more important for the CO2 rise in the latter half of the deglaciation. And that's kind of interesting because that's saying there's a feedback there where maybe the initial trigger for the rise was a change in ocean circulation, but then as more CO2 got in the atmosphere, it warmed the oceans, and that ocean warming then released more CO2. And when you add those things up, those feedbacks together can therefore drive a deglaciation. You know, in our email exchange, you were discussing the importance of changes in ocean currents, and then you put the word climate in quotation marks, and that sent me off on a tangent wondering what we really mean by climate. We're talking about the deep relationship between the ocean, which is not part of the atmosphere, and what happens in the atmosphere. I think the public is confused about this as well. How do you define climate? Well, a lot of times when we talk about abrupt climate change, in, in the paleoclimate record, we're talking about rapid temperature changes in some regions, perhaps different things happen in other regions. And an example of this actually occurs during the deglaciation. So 14.6 thousand years ago or so, Greenland temperatures rapidly increased. Now, at the same time, we know from the ice cores in Antarctica, which we, we can synchronize with the ice cores in Greenland, that Antarctic temperature started to cool. So 14.6 or so thousand years ago was a period of an abrupt climate change. There wasn't at least a large global increase in temperatures. Rather, the northern hemisphere seemed to warm, while the southern hemisphere seemed to cool. And the leading hypothesis for this is that actually you're having a switch in ocean circulation because the oceans can drive how heat is distributed between the hemispheres. So the idea actually is that 14.6 or so thousand years ago, essentially a conveyor in the ocean circulation system started to bring more heat and push it northward, which is why Greenland warmed. Well, at the same time, he was stealing heat, essentially, from the southern hemisphere, and that's why Antarctica starts to cool. Now, one caution I think that I've sensed from you is that some things that happened during deglaciation just don't apply to our situation today. Can you give us an example of a feedback or an event found in times when the great glaciers were melting that would not apply today? Yeah, that's a good question. One example is we, we believe that some of these changes, these abrupt climate changes in the past in ocean circulation, were probably ultimately driven by a flux of fresh water into the ocean. In the case, the rather abrupt CO2 rise about 16.3 thousand years ago, where we think 
it could be driven by a release of land carbon. And we think that land carbon itself was driven by a cooling and perhaps drying of the northern tropics. The ultimate cause of that climate change, we don't really understand it, but actually the most interesting correlation we found and published on earlier was that this cooling and drying seems to occur when there was a Heinrich event. And a Heinrich event, Heinrich events are observed in the ocean sediments in the North Atlantic. And there are periods when you find sediment in the North Atlantic that you could only get if there were icebergs, large icebergs being transported from far north into the very far south. So these, these Heinrich events are often thought of as these large iceberg armadas, essentially, being released from Hudson Strait being released from the Laurentide ice sheet, which was the largest ice sheet during the last ice age. And that ice sheet is no longer there. So we think that it's unlikely that these kind of mechanisms can occur today because we just don't have the same ice sheet configuration. So we don't have the large northern hemisphere ice sheets anymore. And conversely, can you think of something from the period of deglaciation that would tell us something about what would happen in our future? There could be two things. One thing I think the ice core records can possibly constrain is how sensitive land carbon is to climate change. So when climate modelers project how much CO2 is going to be in the atmosphere, say in 2100, the major determining factor is obviously how much fossil fuel we continue to burn. But there are some uncertainties in how much additional carbon come into the atmosphere, either from the land or from the ocean. So actually, when you try to project out temperatures for, say, the next 100 years or so, you have to take into account how the carbon system is going to respond to anthropogenic climate change. So one way to constrain that then is to look to the past when we have natural climate variability and possibly natural variability then in the carbon cycle in response to that climate forcing. So one idea is if we do see in the deglaciation that perhaps land carbon is sensitive to drought, for example, in the northern hemisphere, uh, models that attempt to simulate the carbon cycle can use that as sort of a test bed to constrain their uh, future projections, just to constrain sort of how sensitive the carbon cycle might be. Well, climate sensitivity is a huge issue today, and it's something that definitely is not sorted out. What sort of research do you think needs to be done to take what you've been doing further? I think one feature avenue for the deglaciation, as, as we've sort of been able to produce better and better data constraining the evolution of the climate and the carbon cycle across deglaciation, is to now take our best climate models and try to simulate these changes. Because it is possible that we can try to understand how sensitive the climate is by looking at these benchmarks in the past. Okay, let's leave it there. From Britain, our patient guest has been scientist Thomas J. Bosca. He's doing research into past ice ages at Cambridge University. He's the lead author of a paper titled Carbon Isotopes Characterize Rapid Changes in Atmospheric Carbon Dioxide During the Last Deglaciation. It was just published in PNAS. Find links for this paper and this discussion in my show blog at ecoshock.info. Thomas, thank you for helping us out. Oh, thank you. As you can tell, we are out of time. I'm Alex, ecoshock.org. Thank you for listening again this week. In the atmosphere. In the polar seas. 